All right, so over the last uh, couple weeks, Desmond and I have been teaching on the authority of Scripture. And if you remember from last week, part of Desmond's lesson uh, was on the inerrancy of Scripture. He just kind of hit on that briefly uh, in his lesson. And the inerrancy of Scripture, essentially what we're saying there is that Scripture has no errors in it. And this topic of inerrancy rightly falls under this topic of the authority of Scripture. And the reason for that is because if the Bible can be shown to have errors in it, then its authority is called into question as well. If you could show that there is some type of historical error in the Bible, then it calls into question the truthfulness and the authority of theological statements that are made in the Bible. For example, Jesus saying, if you do not believe that I am the Messiah, you will perish in your sins. Now, that's a weighty statement, but if there is error in Scripture, how do we know that that statement in and of itself is not erroneous? How can we believe that statement? How can we believe that the Bible functions authoritatively if there is error in it? And how do we know that's what Jesus really said or what any part of it is what is really stated? If there's error in one place, how do we know that there is not error in many other places, especially when it comes to these theological statements like the one I just referenced? So this issue of inerrancy is vital for us to understand and the, our prayer, Desmond and I, is that over the next few weeks as we look at this topic, that your confidence in the Word of God will go deeper than it already is as you recognize the inerrancy of Scripture. Now, we're going to mainly be interacting with this topic uh, from an article by the late Greg Bonson called The Inerrancy of the Autographer which is what you have there on your note sheet. And what Bonson seeks to bring out in this article is the fact that what is actually inerrant are the original writings of Scripture. Now, we don't possess any original writings of Scripture, only copies of the originals. So that begs the question... Number one, are there any errors in the original writings? Or are there any errors in the copies that we have? And if there are errors in the copies, what confidence can we have in those copies? So that's what we're going to try to unpack here over the next few weeks. And as you can imagine, the doctrine of inerrancy has always been under attack and always will be as fallen man seeks to find a way to discredit the holy God that he is confronted with in the pages of Scripture. So it's important for us to understand this subject so that we're not tossed to and fro by the trickery of men and the cunning ways in which they seek to undermine the authority of God. And in order for us to understand this subject, Bonson breaks this topic up into four sections, which you have there on your note sheet. This morning... We're going to be looking at the first point there, dealing with the biblical attitude about the autographa and copies of it. So the autographa simply means the original writing. So when God inspired men to put it on parchment or whatever the case may have been, that, that's the autographa. That's the original. Okay? 
We're going to be dealing with, with that issue uh, this morning. What we primarily learn about the biblical attitude is that the copies of Scripture were deemed adequate to perform the purposes for which God originally gave the Scriptures. For example, what King Solomon possessed was obviously a copy of the original Mosaic Law. We see this in Deuteronomy 17, 18 speaking about when a king would take the throne in Israel. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. So the king had to copy the law of God down so that it would be ever before him and he would be governed and guided by that law. But it is a copy of the original Yet, what Scripture says is that it was considered to contain truly and genuinely what we read of here in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and that is the charge of the Lord your God. So let me read this from 1 Kings 2, 1 through 3. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. So David can give that charge to Solomon, knowing that Solomon's going to be copying the law and having a copy of that law and say, this is the charge of the Lord. There's no difference here, Solomon, than what was originally given and is on that original document versus what you're going to be copying down. The book of Proverbs, likewise, draws clear attention to the fact that we have the copy here. Watch what this says in Proverbs 20, 25, verse 1. These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. The copies are themselves held to be canonical in the canon of Scripture and are divinely authoritative. So you jump into Proverbs 25 and you start reading through that. You're reading the copy of what the men of Hezekiah made, right? And that comes to you as authoritative and it's in your word, okay? So, so again, there's no separation there. The biblical attitude is that the copy is divinely authoritative because it's tethered to the original. And that's something that you're going to hear come up over and over again. So what we see in these examples is that the secondary text, the copied text, does the work of God's original written word, and it shares its original authority. Now, the New Testament also displays an interest in these secondary copies of God's word. When New Testament writers appeal to the authority of the Old Testament, they used the texts and versions that were at hand, just as we do today. This was probably like the best part of Bonson's article here, as he's bringing this, this aspect out, is you have, what we're going to look at here is Jesus and the New Testament writers 
referring to the Old Testament scriptures that they have at that time, which are copies of the original, and they're saying these are divinely authoritative. It doesn't matter that we don't have the original one. And you have Jesus and the New Testament writers affirming its authority. And that ought to be very encouraging to us as we think about the inerrancy of Scripture. Jesus himself preached from the existing scrolls, and he treated them as Scripture. I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. And I'm going to start reading at verse 16, and I'm going to read down through verse 21. Yeah, Luke, Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16, and reading through verse 21. And it says this, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom... He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, I want you to think about this aspect here. There's a synagogue in Nazareth just as there were synagogues in the other cities, right? The synagogue in Nazareth has in it a scroll that is a copy of the original. The Son of God walks into this synagogue, takes that scroll, and preaches from it authoritatively. And he has no qualms about the reality that this is a copy of the original and probably a copy of the copy of the copy by this Point. And yet he treats it as divinely authoritative and he says this scripture written by the prophet Isaiah many years ago is fulfilled in your hearing today. Now I don't know about you but that breeds confidence in what I hold in my hand this very day. Because you're holding in your hand a copy of 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 a copy, of a copy and so on. But does that take away from its divine authority? And what you have here is the Son of God testifying, absolutely not. He proclaims it as it is the original, because that's the authority that it has. Now, the apostles did the same type of thing. They used the scriptures that they had at hand for arguing and demonstrating various points. I'll show you here in Acts 17, verses 1 and 2. Now, when they had passed through Amphopolis and Apollonia, sorry, I get tripped up on these cities, they came to Thessalonica, where 
there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here you go. You enter into Thessalonica. Here's a synagogue. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So he goes in, as was Paul's custom, as the Scripture says, he goes into the synagogues, wherever he goes, and he steps into these synagogues and he gets, us, he gets the scrolls that are in that synagogue. And he argues from those scrolls about the truth as it is in Jesus. And he has no qualms of conscience with that. Acts 18, verses 27 through 28. This is referring to Apollos. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So here you have a demonstration of a certain point, taking the scriptures that are at hand in that moment, which are copies of the original, and he's using it to refute points. Now, if you weren't certain that what you held in your hand was the word of God, you wouldn't have a lot of confidence to refute somebody else's point, whatever point it is that they were making. But here again, you don't see any struggle with that. As a matter of fact, their hearers, those who were hearing the apostles teach, they checked that apostolic proclamation by searching the Old Testament scriptures that they then possessed. Look at Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So here you have it. Paul's proclaiming here, right? And these people are saying, let's check the scriptures to see what he's saying is true. So they go to the scriptures that they have at hand at that time and they verify what Paul is proclaiming. Because their opponents shared a belief in the functional authority of the available manuscripts of the scriptures, Jesus and the apostles were able to confront them on the common ground of the existing copies without fretting about the original themselves. This is illustrated for us in John 5, verse 39, when Jesus says to these Jews, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is pointing them back to the scriptures that they then have in hand and he's saying those are testifying about me. And what happens there is it leads Jesus to ask all these different questions. And I want you to see these. Notice how Jesus appeals to his opponents on the basis of the authority of copies of the original. Look with me at Matthew chapter 12. Starting in verse 3, Jesus is, uh, the, the Pharisees are arguing about 
his disciples plucking heads of grain and eating it on the Sabbath. Verse 3, Jesus here says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? So Jesus points them back. Have you not read? Have you not read those copies of the original that you have, which I'm saying are authoritative? And upon that, I'm making my argument here to you. Notice there's no doubt in Jesus' mind here. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Pick up your existing scroll, look into it, and read about what David did. He has no problem with that at all. And then drop down to verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? Okay, that, that law that they have, Jesus, that's a copy, probably copy of copy of copies. And Jesus appeals back to it on the authority that that copy is tethered to the original. Look with me at chapter 21 here in Matthew. And I'll start back at verse 14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouths, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Again, the point here is this constant pointing back to the existing scriptures that these people had in their time, which were copies of the original, and pointing to them as the authoritative word of God. It may very well be true that the holy scriptures that Timothy had known from his childhood were not only copies of the scripture, but the Septuagint translation at that, which was the Greek copy of the Old Testament, Greek translation. So here you have copies and then translated a translated copy of the copies. And then notice what is said here. Does, does Paul wrestle with that? Timothy, I'm not really sure what the original said, but I'm just, I'm just hoping that this has some benefit. But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able watch this which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus there is no shred of doubt there Timothy you probably have the Septuagint translation of a copy 
of the original. And I don't have any issue with saying that is able to make you wise unto salvation because it is tethered to the original. So these illustrations, just a few of them, hopefully what they show us is that the message conveyed by the words of the autographer, by the words of the original writings, and not the physical page on which we find printing, is the strict object of inspiration. Therefore, because that message was reliably reflected in the copies or translations available to the biblical writers, they could be used in an authoritative and practical manner. And again, because Christ raised no doubts about the adequacy of the scriptures as his contemporaries knew them, we can safely assume that the first century text of the Old Testament was a wholly adequate representation of the divine word originally given. So Jesus regarded the existing copies of his day as so approximate to the originals in their message that he appealed to those copies as authoritative. You you know, when you see the respect that Jesus and his apostles held for the existing Old Testament text, it is an expression of their confidence in God's providential preservation of the copies and translations as substantially identical with the inspired originals. That ought to breed confidence for us as well. Present copies function authoritatively because they are viewed as reflecting the original correctly. And I want you to see this. Isaiah was explicitly told to write about this in his book and that it was going to be a witness forever. Let me see if I have that on here. No, I don't. But in Isaiah 38, you have... 30 verse 8, you have that aspect of Isaiah's writing being a witness forever. And then you have copies of that. Is it still a witness? Because it's a copy. Absolutely. All of us can testify to the power and the authority of the word of God if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because you've seen it radically transform your life. The New Testament assumes that the correct teaching can be found in copies of Scripture then in existence because they trace back to the original text. And this text here in Matthew 1.22 points to that. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, which is a quotation of Isaiah 7.14. Okay, so again, here's this, here's this pointing back. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, how do we know what the prophet spoke? Well, we have a copy of the original, but that doesn't deter us from the fact that this is a fulfillment of it. Jesus taught in Matthew 4.4 that we are to live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in so doing, he's tethering here the authority of the scriptures that he had in hand during that time to the original utterance given by divine inspiration. What people read as 
scripture in the books of Moses was thought as of spoken unto them by God. Somebody read this for us. For us. Matthew 22, verses 29 through 32. Good, thank you. Again, you have this appeal back here by Jesus. Have you not read what was said to you by God? So they're holding in their hands a copy, and more than likely copy of copy of copies, of the original, and Jesus points back to it. That's the authoritative word of God that has come to you. The inspired David himself spoke to them in the copy of the book of Psalms that they possessed at that time. In Matthew 22, verses 41 through 44, it says this, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then? So here's Jesus pointing back. How is it then that David... In the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here again, Jesus is arguing from a copy of the original that they possess and pointing back to it and saying, here's what God said. So again, the authority here is so clear, despite the fact that it's not the original. In each of these, the original text is assumed to be present in the existing copy that is consulted. Those who possess existing scrolls, the scripture says, have Moses and the prophets themselves, who accordingly should be heard as such. If you remember the story in Luke 16, Actually, let's turn to that. Luke 16. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dies and goes to Hades. Lazarus received into Abraham's bosom. And watch the argument that happens here. So, rich man in anguish. And he's pleading with a witness to be given to his family. I'm going to pick up at verse 27. And he said, rich man, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, 
if someone should rise from the dead. Wow. You have in hand at that time copies of the original. And yet you have the authoritative word here given by Jesus in this story that they have Moses and the prophets. You know what? There has been some, a lot of errors that have come into the existing scrolls. You're right. It would be better if someone rose from the dead and went and testified. No. They have Moses and the prophets. These copies that are then in existence are authoritative and speak to them as such, and they are more sufficient than if someone should rise from the dead and go and proclaim this. So again, no questions here, right? No wondering, do we possess the word of God today? Just authoritatively consulted. So how we want to think about this is what the actual distance between the original writing, the autographer, and the copies for our present purposes don't matter. They can be ignored because the original text is thought to appear in these copies. Now, when we get into textual criticism and we start looking at how early those copies were made of the originals, that definitely builds weight to it. But it's not even mentioned here. It's not like, hey, there's been you know, 400 years in between the original writing and, and the copy, so therefore it's not divinely authoritative anymore. That's not even an issue that is on the table as Christ and his apostles expound the scriptures. And as they do this, and as Jesus does this, he actually expounds what the prophets had spoken, and he could therefore condemn those who were slow to believe what the prophets themselves had spoken. Not condemn in an eternal sense, but just, why aren't you believing this? And this is what we see here in Luke 24, verses 25 through 27. If I can have somebody read that for us. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Amen. So again, here's Jesus standing on the authority of the existing copies and speaking to them authoritatively. Have you not believed all that the prophets have spoken? And then he appeals back to these existing copies and he opens them up, so to speak, with his disciples. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he stands upon that authority. And the scriptures as they were then written, Christ followers could find what is fulfilled by him, namely all things which were written in all the Old Testament. As Jesus goes further in this discussion, verses 44 through 46 here in Luke 24, he says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written 
that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So Jesus appeals back to the then existing copies and he opens their minds to understand the truth of what was said in it. And you love in that account there in Luke 24 as Jesus is unpacking the scripture to the two men on the road to Emmaus. What do they say afterwards? Did not our hearts burn within us? That's the power of the word of God. If, that's just, if those are just words filled with error, they don't have any weight. They're not carrying anything. This is the divinely authoritative word of God in its copied form because it's assumed that it's connected to the original writings. The writings that were then in hand and that indicted their hearers were assumed to be identical with what Moses wrote. Jesus said, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now watch this. Here, your existing copies here. But if you do not believe his writings, well, wait a minute, that's not, that's not Moses. He didn't, that's not the original that he penned. That's a copy of the copy of the copy. And Jesus speaks back to it authoritatively. If you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my words? He appeals back to them again on that authority. Paul cited Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 10, here in Acts 28, verses 25 through 27, if I can have somebody read that for us. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have Okay, so notice here, Paul bases his whole argument on this text out of Isaiah, this copy that he has, and he's confident to do so because he's confident that what he's saying is the very word of God. And with that, they end up leaving him. The citation of Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 10 is viewed as a rendition of what the Holy Spirit originally said through the prophet Jeremiah. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Okay, so the writer of Hebrews looking and quoting from Jeremiah 31 out of a copy appeals to this authoritatively and uses it in his writing. Indeed, the comfort that could be gained from the existing copies, the then present copies of the scriptures, was again tethered to whatsoever things were written beforehand, the original text that was written in former days. Here's Romans 15, 4. 
as Paul argues this. And look, at this is the encouragement that he's giving to the church in Rome. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. If you have errors that are all over the place because they're copies, that verse doesn't make any sense at all. What encouragement are you going to gain from falsehood? Right? Norm. Yeah. Definitely. Absolutely. Well, that's what he had had in hand at that time. So, yeah, that's a great that's a great passage. Thanks for bringing that up. So, just as we, as we look at the biblical attitude here, over and over again, we're confronted with the obvious fact that the biblical writers made use of existing copies again with the significance that these were a re reliable reflection of the original. So I hope that helps to build some confidence in your understanding of the scriptures and kind of paves the way for us as we continue to talk about this, this issue. Um, we'll launch a little bit more into this uh, next week, but I want to stop for uh, this morning. But again, as you look back at how Jesus and the apostles use the existing copies of the scripture that they had at that time, I hope that gives you comfort and confidence and assurance as you open the word of God. And we'll get into, in future weeks here, some textual criticism and things, things of that nature. Okay? All right. Any uh, questions, comments? Yeah, Amber. That's a great question, and you're right. I can't answer it. I did, that was part of my research, actually, because I thought the same thing. I was like, I wonder when it was. The, the best answer that I could really find on that was because of, um, like, the Babylonian exile and the Assyrian exile, um, the, the going ins and outs of those things. It appears to be some time in all of that, but I couldn't find anything definitive that actually said such. So, Do we know exactly when the originals were lost? Yeah, and I, and I told her I, I didn't know. That was part of my research that I was doing this week. Um, the, the best that I could find was a, re a reference back to the Babylonian exile, the Assyrian exile, and uh, during that time, especially with the destruction of Jerusalem, and the laying waste of, of the land. That's probably the time that's most referred to. Um, but definitively, we can't exactly, exactly say. How do we know the copies are? That's textual criticism, which is coming forth in, in future weeks. Yeah, how do we know the copies are actual, actual copies? And we're going to get into that as we deal with textual criticism and... Uh, what assurance do we have? Yeah, it's nice to know that Jesus and the apostles referred back to it and had confidence, but, you know, here we are some 2,000 years later. What confidence do we have about <laughs> what we hold in our hands? So we're going address to that, address that issue, too. Okay? Yes, Dean. 
Well, the major reason for the Reformation is that the scriptures were held back from the common people. They didn't have access to it because only the clergy were the ones who could read it and understand it. So the Word of God really wasn't at the disposal of the common people. What the, what the Reformers sought to do was to take the Word of God, then written, and copy it and get it out to the common people for their, for their understanding. So definitely interpretation you know, it, for example, if I'm up here reading this and you don't have a copy of it, and I could read something truthfully and then kind of twist it and give a different interpretation of it, and you don't have anything to counter that, you can't appeal back to an authoritative aspect. Yep. Right. Oh, yeah, with the apocryphal books that were added to it, yes. They, they would appeal to those. And really, actually, well, the apocryphal books weren't added, if I remember correctly, to the Council of Trent, which was part of the Counter-Reformation, uh, because the attacks were being made. For example, the Reformers are bringing out justification by faith alone. That's going to just destroy the whole system of Catholicism, how they set it up of the people being dependent upon the clergy and their doctrines that they've started to bring in of purgatory and things of, things of that nature. So the counter-reformation was really when the apocryphal books were added to the scripture. But without, like you're saying, without, without the scriptures at hand for the common people, they had no way to refute what was being taught to them. Yes. Yep. Yes. That's correct. Right. Yeah, well, and, and, and especially the interpretation of it how it was being interpreted, yeah. So, good. All right, good, good thoughts here. Any other questions, comments? Good? Okay, Norm. Will. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, more than, more than likely from the Septuagint, like I said with the uh, thing with uh, Timothy as Paul's appealing to it, more than likely it was a translation, but some of them could have been taken from uh, the Hebrew at that time, especially Paul because he's very learned and had access to these things. But certainly you had it during that time a combination of those things where you'll see, you know, for example, you'll see some quotations taken from the Old Testament that you'll say, man, that looks a little bit different than what I read back here, and you'll have a Septuagint translation be br being brought in at some place. But to your point, you have that aspect of wherever they're appealing to, it doesn't change the authority upon which they stand, whether it's that or this. They're standing on the authority and saying, it's true that we can, we can appeal from Peter.
Correct. Scriptures. Yes. That's right. Yep. Yes. So when Luther is citing Romans, yep. That's right. That's correct. Yep, absolutely. Yep. All righty. Good stuff. Well, we'll pick up this, uh, this study next week. And uh, good, good questions, good interaction. Again, I hope you're encouraged uh, by what we hold in our hands this day. So let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. As the psalm says, exalted in heaven. How we thank you that you have preserved it, kept it, and brought it to us. And it speaks as authoritatively today as it did when you inspired it to be written originally. And so we praise you and we thank you for what we hold in our hands. And I pray as we continue to study over these next couple weeks, Lord, that you would, again, help our confidence to be built in what it is that we hold in our hands. How we praise you and we thank you for it. May we treasure the word of God as we ought to, because you reveal yourself to us through it and never apart from it outside of general revelation. So we thank you for these things. Pray that you would help us now as we corporately gather to worship, that your name would be honored, that you would be exalted, that our ears would be attentive as the word comes to us, as it is the authoritative, inerrant word of God. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.